Hello and welcome to this episode of the Golden Age of Cricket podcast, a program which attempts to keep alive the characters, matches and tales of that beloved cricket period immediately preceding the First World War. My name is Tom Ford. 120 years since he last played a test match, few cricketers continue to be clouded in as much mystery and intrigue as the great Indian player K.S. Ranjit Singhji. As the first non-white sportsman to win international fame, Ranjit Singhji's popularity at the height of his playing career was matched only by the great W.G. Grace. He batted with effortless style and is attributed with having invented the leg glance. But he was plagued with many off-field issues throughout his cricket career, including maintaining a lavish lifestyle well beyond his means and fighting for his right to become the princely ruler of a state in India. My guest today is Simon Wilde, who has covered five Cricket World Cups and more than 250 England Test matches as the cricket correspondent of the Sunday Times. He has written 12 books, including the best-selling England, The Biography, which chronicles the story of the men's national team since 1877, and his latest publication is The Tour, the story of the England cricket team overseas. But it's one of his earlier books which concerns us today. Ranji, the strange genius of Ranjit Singhji. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Simon, there have been many uh, previous biographies on Ranjit Singhji, including some that were written during his lifetime or thereafter, shortly thereafter, including an authorised one. What compelled you to write your biography on him? Well, I was, like a lot of people, intrigued by Ranji. Uh, he was such an exotic figure uh, at a time when cricket was essentially played by white people. There were there, there were no uh, Asians playing cricket, really, um, at the highest level. Uh, and yet this this guy, Ranji, was was not only playing, but was extremely good. Uh, he was as you know he, he was as good as anyone around. So he was a fascinating character. To me, uh, as he was to a lot of people, because you know, where did he come from? How did he how did he make the journey? Um, and I looked at some of the other biographies that you mentioned of Ranji, and they they didn't really sort of shed a awful lot of light on on what had gone on. Um, some of the couple of sort of authorized books about him, uh, which he'd assisted with, were, were quite clearly quite partisan and and uh, light on detail. Um, and then Alan Ross had written one in the early 1980s, um, which was sort of, what's the word? I mean, it was a, it was a stylish, elegant uh, tribute to Ranji. But again, it was not really a case of, he had, it wasn't really a case of him doing any historical research as such. It was more of an essay, if you like, of appreciation. Mm. So I sort of felt there was, there was something to be done to, to, to be uh, d- dug a little deeper. And I, I, I suppose what really gave me a breakthrough was that um, I went to the India office library in London uh, where a lot of documents were brought back after in after Britain um, gave India its independence in the late 1940s um, and all the British officers, civil servants who'd been working there for generations, they came home and they brought all the papers back with them and they were, they're in this depository in London and it's the India office library. And I mm. went there and clearly nobody had been there before really uh, looking for Ranji anyway and I found several files on him and it was immediately obvious to me then that 
there was a lot more to the Ranji story than we knew. Mm. Now, you touched on materials due to his um, dual life, I, I suppose you could say, Indian born and raised and then lived in and educated in England and then travelled between the two frequently. What sort of challenges did that place in front of your research in terms of regarding or, or accessing materials or were there any language barriers? There weren't any language barriers. The documents that I talked about that I found were, were almost entirely in English. There were there were some uh, that weren't, um, but really very few. And I think, as I remember, they, they were possibly translated as well anyway. So there was sort of mm. two versions. So that wasn't really an issue. Um, obviously, uh, I, need, I felt I needed to go to India, which I did. In, in sort of, I, I mean, my book came out in, I think, 1990. Uh, I went over in about 1987. The Cricket World Cup was going on, actually, at the time in India when I went, um, mm-hmm. because I felt I needed to do a bit of on-the-ground research. Uh, that wasn't so much a case of documents as just trying to meet people and go to the places that Ranji had gone to. Um, mm. And so I went to Jamnagar, which is the capital of and no was, uh, which is the state we're talking about that he ruled. Uh, and I met the the then um, present Jamzahib, who's uh, he still the, the title still exists, although he doesn't really have any power. Um, yeah. And I met him, and he was very helpful, and he and he and he told me what he knew, and he introduced me to a couple of old people who had known Ranji, or one guy particularly, very interesting. Yeah. And he gave me a driver, and he the driver took me to uh, Ranji's various palaces around the state and hunting lodges and things like that because he was quite keen on hunting, shooting and fishing and all that sort of stuff. Um, So that was really useful to get a feel of the place. Um, But as as I say, it wasn't really about uh, documents, that part. That was just about getting a feel for the the area and it was uh, very useful research. So, yeah, obviously, yeah, writing a book about someone whose life is based in two places uh, presents his problems, but I... I think I sort of got around that in the end. Yeah. Was there, um, was there anything that particularly surprised you uh, in your research or anything that you uncovered that you didn't know previously? Well, the, the, um, the extent to which he ran up debts, I suppose, um, was, uh, was, was the most striking thing. And um, some, of the, some of the stories I uncovered about his, um, his basic brazen disregard, really, for creditors was, was pretty surprising. Mm. And also some of the people that were involved, um, apart from Ranji, like uh, AC McLaren, who was the England captain for a number of years, captained against Australia several in several series, and he was a close friend of Ranji's, and Ranji employed him as a, as a sort of personal secretary at one point. And McLaren was as... Um, was as unreliable with money as Ranji was, it seems. So there was that that stuff really surprised me because you know you read about the golden age and and you think these 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 players who are you know wonderful cricketers are therefore wonderful people, and actually you find out that, that, that they've got feet of clay, um, even so. And so that was quite shocking, really, and jarred with what we knew about them. Um, we you know we we'd heard. So incidental stuff about them, maybe not having much money. You know, amateur cricketers in those days, they didn't, they weren't super wealthy. A lot of them, but they, they, they mm. took the amateur status for a class reason. Really, if you were a certain type of social class, you were expected to play as an amateur, even if you didn't have much cash. Um, uh, so it could be hard for some of them to actually fund their cricketing careers. Um, and McLaren certainly fell into that category, and so did Ranji. 
I have to say that the the uh, reading your book, the uh, the connection with AC McLaren completely floored me as well. I, I had no idea about that, that he took on this role as Ranji's um, private secretary for a number of years. And it was, I think you portray that um, following following his time as his secretary, McLaren's form never really got back to where it was. He, uh, I think all the traveling and probably responsibility of looking after Ranji's finances really took it out of McLaren and he um, he was never the same cricketer again. It was really interesting to read. Yeah, it, it sort of, his, his career sort of tailed off just before the First World War, really. Um, his, his last sort of big season in terms of the amount of cricket he played was 1909 and, and remarkably, even though he wasn't making any runs, he averaged less than 20 in that season. He still captain England against Australia in the Ashes in England yeah. that summer. And it was England's performance was a shambles, really. Australia won the series, but England kept picking the wrong team and the tactics were all over the place. And it was a bit of a shambles. And McLaren was the man who was running the team, really. And he'd been working for Ranji for at least a year, maybe two before then, and um, spending a lot of time going to India and with Ranji and all this sort of stuff. And then you do wonder how he managed to sort of juggle the two. Mm. Uh, careers or what well he didn't really manage it it was a failure but uh it was it was very interesting i mean there's, there's a great i mean there's one very uh atypical story really of, of just um how feckless they were really there was, a, there was which, which I, I'll, I'll tell you about which was a, a woman called mary taylor who was a portraitist she was um, well known for painting um, smaller pictures of Europe's aristocracy, and in 1908, when Ranji, he was by this point now the prince, the ruling prince in his state, but had come over to England for the summer and did play some cricket for Sussex. She went and saw him. He sat for over two hours. She painted. She, she spent the next two weeks completing the portrait. Then, when it was finished, showed it to Ranji, and he rejected it. Through McLaren, McLaren said, "Sorry, it's not good enough. We don't like it. We're not paying you." So, so she was most upset. And in fact, she bumped into, the way you do, she bumped into Queen Alexandra, um, <laughs> uh, wife of uh, Edward VII. And um, she yeah. said it was a marvellous likeness of Ranji. And um, she said, you know, it's, it's splendid. You know, she knew who he was, but um, Ranji was apparently claiming it wasn't, it wasn't good enough. Um, so Mary Taylor took Ranji to court in Brighton. And then when she, and when she did so, she found out that the courts were actually quite familiar with Ranji, that... Um, he was all he was exceedingly well known as she put it in the courts in brighton um so you know he was letting down a lot of people with, with over money and um actually when this case sort of came to court ranji dropped out of playing cricket for about a month um mm. this is 1908 august and uh, mclaren the same he hardly appeared either so they sort of went to ground um in the end she went to an mp and they went to the uh, Secretary of State for India, and he tried to lean on Ranjin. In the end, he agreed to pay a sort of seventy-five pounds when the originally agreed fee was one hundred and eighty or something. So, in the end, he paid up, but it took he had to go to the highest level of government almost to get him to pay. Um, and there were other cases involving actually far larger sums than that that Ranjin didn't pay. Um, but that was a sort of typical case, really, of him just giving someone the runaround trying to get something for free, really. And if, if they protested, he would claim they had diplomatic immunity as a sovereign of an independent state, which mm. 
the Indian rather sort of complex, complex sort of way they were. The Indian states within India were not run by the British. The British ran part of India. The other part, the Indian princes ran, and they worked in cooperation with the British. So the British mm. liked Ranji because they, they understood him and he played cricket. You know, they thought he was a jolly good chap. So they sort of rubbed along with him. Um, but he was independent. So strictly speaking, I think he he was able to get away with some of these financial cases that came up against him. But um, it wasn't a great look, really, when it when it came to public life. Simon, so much of this, uh, I suppose, confusion relating to Ranji's heritage, certainly from the British perspective when he first arrived, you know, people thought he was a prince and he was happy to go along with that. But it all comes back to what happened early in his life um, uh, and the so-called Nawanagar succession. Because um, mm. he, he certainly wasn't born a prince. Um, so how... How did he even come to be considered for the Nawanagar throne? Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a complicated situation. The, 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 the ruler of the state um, had a son who sort of slightly went off the rails and he, and he, dis, he sort of disbarred him from the, the succession. So he was looking for another son. He'd had some daughters. Um, so there was, a, there was a period of about five years where he hadn't actually got a, a male heir. and Ranji's grandfather was a cousin of his so he went the ruler went to him and said can I take one of your young relatives as, a, as, a, as an heir until such time as I have an heir or if I don't have one then he, 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 he remains my, my successor if you like um, so this arrangement was um, sort of this deal was struck but Ranji was never formally adopted that to be a sort of ceremony it, it, it never happened um, partly because Ranji's family, well, particularly his father, was uh, was a fairly obstreperous character. Who, well, he was described as a drunkard by the British. Um, so the, the the ruler actually went off the idea, and then um, when Ranji was about ten, uh, the ruler had did in fact have a, a son and heir. And so he, so Ranji's sort of direct involvement with the uh, succession sort of ended when he was about ten. And there is actually a letter which still exists when he was 12, written by the ruler, t- telling him, uh, spelling out to him exactly what was happening, which was that you, you know, you are not my heir. The succession ceremony was never carried out, but as a token of sort of um, respect to you and loyalty to you, I'm going to send you to um, a college in Rajkuma, uh, the Rajkuma College in Rajkot, um, which is a, a sort of it's almost like a, a school along English public school lines and was for was for sort of developing ruling princes. So Ranji, although he wasn't officially a prince and wasn't likely to become one, was educated as such. And his um, education sort of took off at this college. And he was a bright boy. He was quite good at sport, good at tennis particularly, um, academically good. And so he had an advantageous education, but was not strictly in in the succession at all but he had been briefly considered for it and that's sort of how he grew up with this with this consciousness that he he, he had a near miss really he'd, he'd almost mm. you know had a life-changing 
um, decision in his favour, but he'd, he'd been denied it. So I, I suspect that this probably coloured his view in later life that he he was entitled to something that um, yes. had been taken away from him, and um, that, that stayed with him. And he, and he never quite gave up on the succession. He felt like he'd been un, unfairly treated. So that mm. was sort of what drove him on, I think, in in later later years. Yes, which is partly understandable, I suppose. And it, it leads me to my next question because it's regarding his name, what we should actually call him. I mean, we universally know him as Ranji or Ranji Short um, mm. affectionately and it was what people called him in England during his career. But, um, I mean, as I described in my introduction, uh, he's uh, uh, usually referred to as KS Ranjit Singhji and the KS... Uh, usually stands for Kumar Shri, which I believe stands for Honourable Prince. So mm. was he himself trying to uh, project this image that he was indeed a prince? Yeah, I think so. Um, and the college, had been, as I say, the college you went to in, in Rajkot was um, called the Raj Kumar College. So the Kumar bit of the name is there. And, 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 and it, was a, it was a college for princes. So... That title, he sort of kept with him from the college, if you like. He thought, well, you know, I went to this school. Everyone else is called Kumar, so am I. Um, and then when he went to England uh, after he'd finished his education there, one of the, the the sort of principal of that college was an Englishman. And he'd been to Cambridge himself. And he, he I think, took the attitude that the brightest boys in that college could go to Cambridge um, as a way of, finishing their education if they were bright enough and you know talented enough to do it and and it fitted and in and ranji was one of three boys he took over to england in 1888 when ranji was 16 so uh he he was by his own you know by his own sort of abilities he 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 was taken to cambridge Uh, and it's when he went to england that ranji started describing himself as more than just ranji sinji which is his name he he called himself well in some of the early newspapers where he's playing cricket or tennis or whatever, and he and he gets a mention mm-hmm. in the newspaper. He's often referred to things like Prince Ranjit or mm-hmm. Kumar Ranjit Singhji, things like that, or Prince Kumar. So there's various sort of titles he seems to be using. Presumably, someone asked him, you know, what's your name, sort of thing, and that's what he says. So it mm-hmm. must come from him. And I think also with obviously cricket scorecards, there's this tradition of putting your initials down. So he might want to give himself some initials. Um, if he's playing a, a cricket match and um, and he goes down as KS. So that's sort of stuck, really. But it did, I think there was an element of him wanting to project himself as a as a yes. prince. And who knew, you know, who knew otherwise? Nobody in England had the faintest idea, really. So yes. he, could, he, he, could, he could do what he liked, do what he liked, and, and, that's, and, he, and he did. You're right. There's the, uh, the days before the internet where we could all do our own <laughs> background checks, I suppose. Um, and you mentioned uh, him arriving in England in 1888. You uh, tell the wonderful story in your book. Uh, he literally gets off the ship and is taken straight away to see the touring Australians play, uh, I think, at the Oval or Lords, mm-hmm. one of them. And he's uh, apparently just mesmerized by what he sees. Uh, Charlie Turner for the Australian team, I think, um, mm-hmm. is actually uh, normally a, uh, a bowler, but I think he has a wonderful innings as a batsman and it just captivates Ranji and he sort of decides then that this is the game for him. And he, 
uh, as you say, ends up at Cambridge. Um, what's interesting about his uh, trajectory, I suppose, as a cricketer is that it is at Cambridge that he really forms his uh, the ability as a batsman that he was to later become famous for. But he had a tough time getting the establishment at Cambridge to notice him, which is possibly because of his uh, skin colour. And in particular, he struggled to get the attention of Stanley Jackson. Is that right? Yeah, Stanley Jackson was the captain at Cambridge and would become, well, in fact, he played for England in the early early 1890s and would play alongside Ranji, very great cricketer in his own right and future captain um, of England. He was at Cambridge at that time, and uh, yeah, he didn't. Um, he 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 saw he saw Ranji bat in the nets and, and the like, and and, he, and on Parker's Piece, which is a sort of piece of common land in the middle of Cambridge, where lots of cricket matches, sports matches of all sorts, would go on endlessly, really. And you know, you could walk across there in the summer, and there'd be half a dozen games of cricket going on, and he, and he saw Ranji batting in in one of those games, and it's quite a big crowd watching and you know what's all the fuss about sort of thing and, and then he watches him bat but he thinks although he's this this guy this Indian chap who's scoring runs he, he doesn't think much to his technique so the, the thing was that Ranji played in a different way from most conventional cricketers and so at first glance you might think well you know he's not doing it right sort of thing but of course the the results were justification in themselves, and so it, so it took time for Ranji's methods to be accepted, and he had to formulate a game. He didn't really have a, a game at all, and um, yeah. but at Cambridge you could have. I mean, it's, it, there was a you know you'd be in a particular college, and each college would have a cricket coach, somebody there'd be professionals who would bowl to you in the nets. So yeah. if you wanted to practice, you could practice, and Ranji did, and he was helped by a couple of professional cricketers who used to play for Cambridge or even Surrey. Um, I mean, the, the Hayward family was a famous um, Surrey and Cambridge yes. family. And Tom Hayward, the greatest of all, scored 100 first-class hundreds. He was as good as WG Grace and as Ranji in his way. Um, not probably as glamorous, but extremely good. Um, Dan Hayward was a relative of his. He coached Ranji a lot. And there's this famous story of um, Ranji's right foot being pegged down to the crease because he kept sort of shifting away from the ball because he probably thought mm. it was hard and didn't want to be hit by it like we all do when we first play cricket it's quite a hard ball um and he pegged his back foot down and told him to keep still and this uh, led to Ranji learning to stay in line with the ball but also to sort of take a step over to the right um, side of the wicket with his left leg um in the sort of I suppose still trying to sort of trying to get out of the way of it, but then flicking it down to fine legs. So he developed this sort of unusual leg side game because in in those days, public school way of playing cricket was that you always hit the ball through the offside. That was regarded as the gentlemanly way of doing it and the proper, properly stylish way of doing it. Hitting to leg was a bit unseemly, really. Um, but Ranji developed a really strong leg side game as a result of this rather sort of unusual method, coaching method that was used when he was probably twenty. Uh, 19 or 20 and, and mm. you can see the consequence of that change quite quickly because he scored a lot of runs in club cricket in Cambridge so he wasn't really doing it at the university he was doing it in he played for local club sides and he scored 100 after 100 he scored 2,000 of the scorecards that survived in 1892 he scored over 2,000 runs um, mm. and probably plenty of other games as well so he suddenly became very good at scoring runs 
Um, but this was all happening away from the, you know, the, uh, with the sort of established way of, of breaking through. So Stanley Jackson, someone like Stanley Jackson wasn't convinced by all this stuff or if he knew much about it. But eventually he was persuaded by some of the professional coaches that actually Ranji was better than a lot of the people he was picking in the Cambridge team. So eventually Ranji got his chance. Yes. Um, and just on that, I mean, you you described it very well just then, but I just want to uh, touch on it a bit further about this, uh, these unorthodox strokes that uh, Ranji starts to introduce to cricket. Um, as you say, you know, it wasn't the, uh, uh, the gentlemanly way to often bat hitting balls onto the leg side. Um, it was more certainly for an amateur, uh, the offside was where they were expected to make their strokes and it wasn't so much how many runs they made. It was how they made them. Um, do you think in a sense, it took someone like Ranji who wasn't of the British establishment, I suppose, to introduce these strokes um, almost as if he didn't know any other way? Yeah, I think that's true. I think um, he could uh, he could get away with it to an extent. Also, he didn't have the same background. He came over to uh, England from India at age 16, 17, so he'd never really been exposed to the sort of traditions that the other young cricketers might have been exposed to. So... He came. He was coming at it with a different mindset, different a different eye, and um, people would say, "Well, he doesn't know any better." If you like, but eventually, he he, he the justification is in is in the runs he scores. Um, interestingly, I mean, FS Jackson, Stanley Jackson, who eventually picks him for Cambridge, actually went to India in the winter of eighteen ninety two three, which is the winter before Ranji was picked, and. Um, he, he went on an amateur cricket tour to India and he saw other Indian players playing the game. However, they played it probably in quite rudimentary fashion but or in a different mm. way, an uncoached way. Um, and so I think he came back from that tour with perhaps a more open mind to actually the fact that uh, they, might, they might be doing it differently but it actually still works, you know, and, and yes. so he was maybe a little bit more tolerant. Um, so, I mean, Jackson still deserves some credit, I guess, for picking him. It would have been easy... Uh, for someone just to say, I'm still not, I'm still not picking this chap. He's not, you know, he, he's he's not playing the way I we were expected yeah. to play. But he gave him his chance, and although Ranji didn't score very big runs for Cambridge, he didn't do badly either. Um, and eventually, this sort of led to a couple of years later, Sussex then signing him up to play for them. Um, there's no particular connection with Sussex really, other than I think he knew he was friendly with a couple of their players, in fact, including Billy Murdoch, who's a famous Australian mm. cricketer who was already playing for Sussex. And I think he got to know Ranji. So there was a connection there. And I think Murdoch encouraged him to join Sussex. And um, he, had to, he had to sort of live in residence in a county for two years to, to be uh, eligible for, to play for them. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Ranji never lived in Sussex for two years before 1855 mm. when he made his debut. But again, as mm. an amateur, sometimes they bend the rules a little bit. Um, yes. So yes, he ended up at Sussex, and he, and he scored, he scored a, a big hundred on his debut, really, and never looked back. And there was some, um, I think uh, you wrote in your book, there was some 
I think his debut for Sussex was only revealed the day before or something. So if anyone objected, it was too late anyway. So mm. Billy Murdoch and the uh, Sussex uh, team, I think, just knew how to get uh, or knew the loopholes um, mm. and they sort of slid him in and he and the rest is history, as they say. Um, yes. And he had, he had this um, seemingly to us this meteoric rise in terms of success. So 18... 93 is when he uh, debuts for Sussex and within three years he's playing for England against the visiting Australians uh, of their 1896 tour and he hits what is still regarded today as one of the most legendary uh, innings, uh, certainly on debut. He hits 154 not out um, in the second innings um to save the match i think i think the match is a draw um the old trafford test um but this this seemingly rapid rise to uh the top and the fame that came with that uh do you think that added to the public's mystique surrounding ranji yeah i do yes he 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 hadn't done much at cambridge he played a few matches um, before he joined Sussex. He also played a few matches for sort of MCC and a few club sides, things like this. Again, didn't really do that. I'm talking about first class cricket here. Didn't really do much. And then he scores 100 on his debut for Sussex, 150 against MCC and Lords, uh, you know, big place to do it. Um, and scores a lot of runs in his first full season, 1,700 runs. That's a lot in those days. And then in the next year, 1896, when the Australians come over, he scores 2,780 runs, which was a record for a season at that point. So within two years, he's become, in a way, the the best batsman has ever been. Um, He scores 10 hundreds, again, a lot from that time. Mm. He's he's batting on a level which even WG Grace perhaps didn't quite achieve. It was certainly comparable with Grace. Um, and this happened so quickly. And so people were going, well, you know, where's this guy come from sort of thing? You know, yeah. How's he done this? You know, not only is he Indian to come from a country that we didn't know played much cricket, but he's come into English conditions and, and he's doing better than the best English batsmen who've been learning the game here for forever. So mm. I think that does creates a sense of um, astonishment and wonder, really, that uh, he's a bit of a magician. You know, there's a, quite a there's quite a lot. If you look at the language used to describe him in um, mm. newspaper reports and the rivalry and player, other players talking about him, you know, they talked about a conjurer and a magician and things like this. It was it was magical. Yes. You know, what he was doing was to be considered as magical, really. But in fact, as we've already said, it, a lot of hard work had gone into the development of his game, but it was away from the public eye. They didn't know that had been happening, but He'd done a lot of hard work in the nets in Cambridge. Um, and so it wasn't really uh, an overnight thing at all, but that's how it appeared to to the wider public. And that certainly added to the aura of magic about, about him. But again, um, uh, Ranji seemed to play up to it a bit, didn't he? I mean, I think he mentioned how um, he and I think he grouped all Indians into this example had better eyes or that they could see the ball quicker or something so you know he's not um 
you know, he's not standing away from these, uh, the names that they're using to describe, you know, this magic, as you say. I mean, he's sort of, I feel like he's living up to it or that he's trying to almost take advantage of it, that he is different and that was working to his advantage. Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think, it, well, as, as, as we're saying, the, um, the this business of um, what was happening back in India with with his um, his place in the succession, or rather, his you know his, his loss of the, the loss of his place in the succession, mm. would have would have been um, would have rankled with him, and he would have. I think he quite quite quickly saw that cricket was a way of um, burnishing his reputation and giving him uh, fresh standing, and this might be a this might open doors to him, and as it as indeed it did. Um, so that he could lobby the British to to give him uh, you know give him some status back in India. The, the British were quite the British civil service in India were quite active in helping the princes. As I've said they were, they were politically they were independent really, but the British did deal quite closely with them. And I think he may have realised that the British could help him with his with his hopes of, of getting back mm. the throne that had been taken from him. So. I think he used cricket as a vehicle um, to, to mm. achieve his political aims, but also just to achieve, you know, he needed, <clears throat> he didn't have any money. Uh, he needed, yes. he just had an allowance from the state, from India, not much, but he, he needed some means of, of achieving something when, he, when his cricket stopped. He, he, so he, I think he saw the long, he was playing the long game. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode on the life and career of the great Indian batsman, K.S. Ranjit Singhji, with my guest Simon Wilde. If you're a fan of the podcast, remember to subscribe on your preferred platform, leave a review, and follow the podcast on social media. I'd love to hear from you. My name is Tom Ford. Bye for now. <laughs>